Hey everyone, welcome back to the MTG Goldfish Podcast, episode four. So I have the crew with me here. We have Saffron Olive, as you know him, or as I call him, Seth, or you can call him both, and Richard of MTG Goldfish, and your host, Chaz. So we have a lot of things to talk about this episode. So we have the Star City Games Top 8, and we're going to talk about that. And we have a couple of other tournaments to rope into that discussion as well the Sunday Super Series, and we wanted to touch on the uh, modern Premier IQ, both uh, the standard and the modern in Washington, D.C. Then we're going to, as a special request, we were uh, asked to talk about tiny leaders. So we're going to tackle that. And then we have our hashtag trending segment that we try to add into every episode. And then we'll, as always, end it with the hashtag MTGFishMail mailbag, and we'll be answering questions from that, too. So before we get into stuff, how are you guys doing? Doing good. Doing good. All right, so we're just going to get right into it. We saw the debut of Fate Reforged in Modern, Legacy, and Standard. So let's just jump into the what we saw from the Standard section of uh, the open Washington DC and I will open the floor to you guys. So we'll start with Richard. Uh, Delve is back. My friends, Tassiger, <laughs> the golden fang. <laughs> we knew the card was good, but just watching it on camera, it's just so broken. And this will warp standard, you know, having a three man of four or five, as we saw Gerard Fabiano do many, many times is going to change things. And, uh, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out, but, Tassigar was the biggest uh, takeaway from the weekend for me. Seth, initial thoughts? Well, I mean, Tassigar was a big one, that's for sure, but I was shocked at how many people were playing Ugin. Like, I I had thought uh, Ugin would be basically Karn and, like, maybe see very fringe play, but everyone was trying to get up to eight mana and cast him with the help of a card I know you like, Chaz, Frontier Siege. Yes, yes, I do. I like me some Frontier Siege. I'm going to be honest, I did not see that one coming, and I'm super stoked about it. <laughs> uh, it seems really powerful, and it was all over, you know, the coverage. It seems like, like you said, if people are playing Ugin, seems like people are going to be playing Frontier Siege to get Ugin out as fast as possible. I also want to take this time to shout out to one of my followers, as I told him I would, uh, Dan A., for being all over Taziger since <laughs> he was pre-release pricing for, you know, 199 and just jumping all over him since then. Good on you, man. Taziger is certainly, as Richard said, pretty good. Pretty good. So, Taziger, so do you think this is now going to be warping the format at all? You know, you mentioned Delve, Richard. Is this going to be format warping? Is is Standard now going to be tailored to stopping a early Taziger? Are we at that point yet? I think so. I think we're seeing Tarmogoyf in Standard. Right, You have this really cheap 4-5 body, and you need to deal with it, and it's actually very hard to deal with. Like You can't stoke the flames it, right? It's That 5 toughness is big, right? So it's yeah. hard to remove, and aside from getting just beat down by this 4-5, if you let your opponent activate the ability, like that's just so bad. You have like two turns to kill this Tassiger before it gets out of hand, and I think it's actually going to warp the format. I think you're seeing you know, Tarmogoyf in standard now. Yeah, that's that's a pretty bold statement. So, Seth, you wrote a article this week on MTG Goldfish 
favorite forge by the numbers. And you ran a lot of the numbers on the various tournaments over this weekend. So could you just touch a little bit on uh, the article that you wrote? So this ties into what we're talking about. The amount of, you know, you mentioned Ugin seeing a lot of play. Now Taziger was seeing a lot of play. So do you think these could be trends going forward, just the amount of numbers that were showing up over the weekend? Well, I mentioned it in the beginning of the article. I tend to do this every time a new set comes out, see what gets played a lot right off the bat. And in some cases, that is what ends up happening over the next few months. Like in week one of uh, Cons of Takar, Windswept Teeth was the most played fetch land, and it's still the most played fetch land today. On the other hand, Sharkhan Dragonspeaker was all over the place on week one, and now he's like eight bucks in like a one-of sideboard card. So all this to say, this isn't necessarily predictive of the future, but it, so you got to kind of pick and choose through these numbers. Anyway, the most... The most played card overall was Wild Slash, which isn't really a surprise because it goes into uh, Jeskai and Mardu and Red White, and it's an uncommon, so financially it doesn't matter too much. The big ones, though, were Monastery Mentor and Soulfire Grandmaster were both the second and third most played cards, almost even with each other. And Mentor I expected, but Soulfire Grandmaster was all over the place and was like universally adapted in Mardu right from week one is like a three or four of. So that came as a surprise to me. People started to write off Soulfire Grandmaster, not the mentor as much, but it, it's, it was certainly interesting looking at all the numbers that you brought up uh, that Soulfire Grandmaster was just as played as the mentor. And maybe we can see Soulfire Grandmaster either maintaining its price or you know becoming more popular as standard goes on. So um, So just looking at the dissecting the top eight of the standard set, uh, open Washington, D.C. Is there anything that jumps out at you right away? We're, we'll start with Richard. Nothing about the top eight jumped out, but the card choices we saw were quite interesting. Like the, the Saltai control that took down the tournament was running Rakshasa's Secret. So if you don't know what that does, it's a three-mana sorcery. Target opponent discards two cards, put the top two cards of your library into your graveyard. To look at this card in a vacuum... <laughs> yeah. This is like the most terrible card in existence, right? It's just so bad. But, you know, the way it played out, it's basically three mana, opponent discards two cards, two Lotus Petals, right? The, yep. the graveyard cards help fuel, dig through time, uh, Tastiger, uh, Murderous Cut, you know, all those Delve cards. So, you know, there, there are a lot of interesting cards showing up in the top eight. Valor's Stance is another one, you know, it, it showed up everywhere, and it's the... Cheap white removal that white needed, right? Uh, you know, it, it's conditional removal, but the, the indestructible clause gives it a lot of play when you don't need removal. So I think, right. you know, those, those are some two interesting cards that, that showed up in the top eight there. Uh, what about you, Seth? For me, I just wanted to mention Gerard Fabiano. This guy is the master of bug decks in, like, every format. And every time I see one of his deck lists, I end up laughing. Like, he plays the weirdest numbers that make no sense, and then he goes and just crushes a tournament. He was playing Legacy Bug a couple months ago. I wrote an article in my blog about it, playing, like, Treasure Cruises and, like, oh, I'll play, like, One Days, a couple Gataxian Probes, just off-the-wall numbers. And his standard deck's the same way. It's just got two of this, two of that, a couple Murderous Cups, some Rachata Secrets. Salt Eye Charm, he just stuffs it all in there and somehow goes out and beats everyone. So 
He's actually a yeah. financial guru. He's like gone deep on Rakshasa's secret. <laughs> He's like, I'm gonna win. I'm gonna win the GP with this. The price yeah. will soar, and I'll be rich. <laughs> yeah, certainly uh, uh, an interesting theory. I'm gonna have to piggyback. When I saw Soltai Control and I looked at the deck list and saw Four Seder Wayfinder, <laughs> I was just like, What is going on? Like what? And then you know, Richard, you make a great point. It's basically a two mana one one blocker gain four lotus petals so i mean if it works if you can play rick sasha's secret i guess Seder wayfinder is just as good the one interesting thing and it didn't top eight uh nothing really else kind of jumped out at me i kind of figured some of these would um jump in here but the the amount of yeah amount of decks playing ugin and frontier siege being like a big breakout card tazager as well just showing really good numbers and just showing that they can do really good things in this format. But aside from that, we have an 11th place piloted by Mark Topner. Hopefully I'm not butchering his name. So we have Teamer Ascendancy. So just when you thought that we, you know, the Ascendancies were just awful except Jeskai, now we have a Teamer Ascendancy deck. And uh, what do you guys think about that? Was that, like, interesting to see on camera? Is this a deck that could flourish going forward. Uh, we'll start with you, Richard. Yeah, so the teamer Ascendancy combo was definitely an interesting deck. So uh, the way the combo works is you need teamer Ascendancy in play, and uh, what that does is gives your creatures haste. The other key component here is Teamer Sabertooth. It's a 4-mana four 4-3, four, and you can pay 2-mana to return another creature you control to its owner's hand. And so with Teamer Sabertooth, and Ascendancy in play, you basically play uh, a mana dork, such as uh, Karametra's Acolyte, the Devotion mana dork, or you have a Nykthos and a Voyaging Seder, and you basically bounce your mana dork, play it again, and then bounce it, play again infinitely. So your mana dork needs to be able to make 7 mana. Uh, so you get infinite mana, and then you cast Genesis Hydra for uh, infinite and then uh, in your deck, you'll have one Nihalia, so you can get to her, and then give your Genesis Hydra Trample, and then you win. So that's the combo. It sounds very complicated, but apparently it's, it's not that hard to put together, because uh, you saw the high finishes with this deck. I love combos. I love combos in standard, so this is great, you know. I don't know if the list that was played is the most optimal. I'm sure people will try to tweak it, but... Yeah, we have a combo deck in standard, and it's very exciting. So it's, it'll be interesting to see where it goes from here. We have another combo deck in standard, yeah. which is insane. So what do you think, Seth? Team or Ascendancy? I mean, the deck's very cool. The problem I see, though, is there's so many enchantments in the format that people are playing enchantment hate like crazy. Like, one of the top eight decks was playing four Abzan Advantage, which I didn't even think anyone would play in Limited. It's one white target <laughs> player, Saxon Enchantment, Bolster 1. So I just think it picks up on a lot of this fringe hate that's trying to kill Corsair and kill Jeskai Ascendancy and all these other random, the sieges now, the siege cycle is something else you want to answer. So I think the deck's cool, but if it just can't win without having Ascendancy in play, that's a risky strategy with all the enchantment hate. I think Fate Reforged certainly added a new great dynamic to standard and the format's just wide open. I know multiple, like I said, multiple combo decks certainly seems like a, a very healthy and great standard. So just any kind of final thoughts on the standard portion, either of you? 
No, not really. I mean, it looks. I'm excited to test out the cards when they hit up on MTGO this weekend. Uh, the pre-release actually starts Friday, so keep that in mind. And we can. Uh, I think that a lot of times once the cards get on uh, Moto, the metagame shakes out a lot more because all the pros and players can test all day and all night now. So I'm excited to see what happens over the next couple weeks and how things shake out. We'll move right into talking about the legacy section and the modern section as well. So modern. The top eight, we have Boggles, Junk, Zoo, Blue Red Storm, Green Red Tron, Blue Red Storm, Jund, and Affinity. Post-banning world, uh, what do you think so far, uh, Richard? Yeah, uh, the metagame is very diverse. We have uh, seven different archetypes represented in the top eight. It's what most people predicted it would look like. You know, you're seeing Boggles, you're seeing Junk, you're seeing Jund, you're seeing Tron, you're seeing Storm. Uh, an interesting comment that someone had on Twitter was, you know, it doesn't mean much because previous to the pod banning, the top eight was always very diverse. There were always a multitude of decks in there, but it just happened that pod always won. Yeah. Okay, so we don't know <laughs> if this is the same thing. But Great observation. It's, it's looking good so far. We, we see a lot of decks, and uh, I don't play modern myself, but, you know, it looks good. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to piggyback and say the same thing. It's... It's certainly diverse, and without Pod, you know, it's, it seems like there's a lot of different things that are taking up the top eight. We posted, myself and Seth have posted articles about the post-banning, when the banning restricted announcements were announced, and it uh, seems like a lot of the things that we were talking about are coming to fruition. So I'm going to let you weigh on in on that too, Seth. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it is pretty much what uh, what we expected. Um, I'm a little surprised to see two Storm decks in the top eight, but I guess, I mean, maybe that bodes well for Jeskai Ascendancy eventually, if the can-tripping uh, Storm plan can actually work. I don't know, I guess, I think this is a weird tournament because we have the Pro Tour coming up, uh, not this weekend, but the following weekend. So this is kind of this weird, like, stopgap tournament, so it's cool to see that it's so diverse. But everything's just going to change once everyone sees what the pros play uh, on the 6th through 8th anyway. So it's encouraging to see diversity, but I'm not putting too much weight on this tournament with the Pro Tour right around the corner. Yeah, and I think we can leave it at that for Modern. So we also wanted to talk about the Legacy, and we'll let Richard weigh in on the Legacy section for the Premier IQ in Washington, D.C. So Richard, Legacy. There aren't, any, there aren't any surprises here. Uh, most people predicted it would just look like Legacy before Treasure Cruise was printed, and that's what it looks like. Sneaking Show took down the event. You know, nothing too interesting. It just looked like standard Legacy to me. Uh, there have been some rumblings that Tastiger is going to show up in Legacy, so we'll keep an eye out for that. But yeah, I mean, the, the metagame just looks like a pre-Treasure Cruise metagame. Yeah, so um, with that all being said, I guess that wraps up uh, our thoughts and our initial impressions on what we saw post-Fate uh, fate Reforged, post-Banning, and it's certainly looking up, it's certainly, uh, one can be optimistic, Modern didn't die, Treasure Cruise, Dig Through Time, and Pod were banned, we didn't see any Golgari Grave Troll-based decks, but we'll, we'll hold more uh, thoughts about that when the Pro Tour happens, so it's a very small sample size on all of these. You know, metagames can still shift, but it's certainly something to be interested in. So we were asked to handle tiny leaders. And so we're going to take some time in this podcast to talk about the format. 
and myself, Seth, and Richard all play Tiny Leaders, so we sort of know what we're talking about. <laughs> all right? Sort of. Yeah, so we're not by no means experts on the format. We were asked to talk about it, so we're going to talk about it. Initial thoughts on the format, Richard. Uh, I love it so far. You know, I'm, I'm a spiky player. My favorite format is Legacy, and to me, Tiny Leaders is Legacy Light. When I was playing against Seth, I was playing my Flooded Strand, crafted for a Tundra, Swords as Guy. He played Stoneforge Mystic, grabbed a sword. He tried to activate Stoneforge Mystic. I Vendillion clicked him. You know, it's all good times. That's like a perfect, uh, perfect Legacy game, right? So it feels like an affordable Legacy format to me. And, uh, you know, I really enjoy that. I, you know, to me, Tiny Leaders is the format modern is supposed to be. The format where you do broken stuff, but it's still affordable, right? And to me, that's what Tiny Leaders is. And I've enjoyed it and I look forward to playing it more. The, the questions that remain to me is, you know, is the format balanced? Is there enough diversity? Things like that. But, you know, my initial impression is it's very cool. And even though I've never played a game of Commander in my life, uh, I love, you know, I love Tiny Leaders so far. All right. What about you, Seth? Well, I'm also a spiky player, and I don't play EDH at all. But I had a lot of fun playing this, too. I think, from what I understand, it's it's somewhat somewhere between, like, the French uh, one-on-one EDH games and Legacy is where I see the format. Um, the one thing I noticed was... A lot of it comes down to your deck. Like, I played uh, three or four different decks uh, against Richard, playing different decks. And some of the matchups, I came away feeling like I was playing a standard deck against his Legacy <laughs> deck. And and that wasn't too much fun. So I think if the decks are fairly equally matched, we it's a really fun game. But there's a tendency to be lopsided uh, if one person's building casually and the other person is playing Vendillion Clicks and Snapcasters. Yeah, so just uh, real quick before I weigh in. So what were a couple of the tiny leaders that you two used when you guys played? Um, so I, I, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Richard. Yeah, I, I used the uh, Geist of St. Trap, the reportedly <laughs> strongest you know, leader. That's, Boo. That's my inner spike. <laughs> How can you pass up Stoneforge Mystic with Counterspell uh, I guess you and, and Daze, you know? And I also tried Anafenza, a kind of graveyard recursion value sacking deck. Or not Anafenza, sorry, uh, Alesha. He smiles at death. Oh, very nice. Uh, and what about you, Seth? I played an Anafenza build too, which was more of a, like a creature-y, uh, mid-range, I guess, for being a three converted mana cost in less format deck. And then I played two different Mariki builds. One of them was awesome, and I had a ton of fun with it. The other one, I curved, like, Delver of Secrets into Honor of the Pure and wanted to smash my computer. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. so yeah. So I played with Seth, and uh, we, we had a pretty good couple of rounds, too. I played uh, Guafa Hazid and uh, Shunyun. So Shunyun was kind of like, you know, it was cool. You know, <laughs> my thoughts about Tiny Leaders were, were also the same. I, I thought, so Seth mentioned it perfectly. It's a perfect blend of one versus one Commander and Legacy. And it's tailored to be played one-on-one, which is fine with me. I don't ever really play casual games and sort of, like, aboard the thought of having, like, a four-hour, like, EDH, like, marathon just to have one game played. Um, So it was perfect for me. I I enjoyed myself. I thought it was pretty fun. The Guava Hazid deck was (laughs) fairly uh, interesting. Um, I could see that it got 
fairly frustrating for people that play against it. While it's not, you know, Stoneforge Mystic and Geist of St. Trapped, I, I, I enjoyed myself. It was certainly nice to have, like, Meek Stone and Scroll Rack and just other nice cards to, you know, never, never let Seth attack me. <laughs> so, and yeah, like, the Shun Yun deck was, you know, it was okay, but I just gassed out, like, really fast. So, I don't know whether it's here to stay, like, EDH, but it, it certainly seems real. It certainly seems like it could affect some price movement. Uh, we've already seen a couple uh, price movement uh, I mentioned in one of my articles. So Sieg, the River Guide, and the Cutthroat. So I guess whichever one ends up being better. Uh, so those were kind of increasing in price. And we saw recently Mariki Reverit, so the foils. But it could just be that there's like a low supply being like a time-shifted foil. So what do you guys think? I'll let I'll start with Richard. Do you think that this could heavily impact cards going forward, or do you see this as maybe being just like people are already playing their legacy staples, and maybe you know the tiny leader stuff doesn't really affect anything? Yeah, I, I think we're gonna see if the format takes off, we'll see a bump in the price of legacy staples. You know, I shared with you guys my deck building strategy, which is choose a leader. And then put every legacy staple from those colors in your deck. <laughs> and then yeah. move on to modern staples to put all those in. Yeah. And then fill out the rest of your deck, right? Like cards like Stoneforge Mystic, uh, you know, Sword of War and Peace, Sword of Fire and Ice, etc. They're going to be good. And they're going to go into your tiny leader decks. So I expect all the legacy, uh, legacy staples to see a bump if tiny leaders takes off. And I would probably hedge my bets on those cards rather than, you know, obscure, foil, you know, tiny leaders. But, uh, yeah. All right, and what about you, Seth? Well, I think the format's a lot of fun, like I said. I'm still really unsure where it's heading going forward. Like, if this is going to trend towards being another EDH, or if it's going to trend towards being Kaleidoscope or some other format that just falls by the wayside. So I'm still kind of torn on that. I do think that Richard is right, though. If you do want to buy cards for the format, Legacy and Modern Staples, especially Legacy, are probably the way to go because it's going to be hard to lose money on those anyway. Like, owning um, owning Dual Lands and owning other reserveless Legacy cards, it's hard to really lose. So even if the format doesn't take off, they're good cards to have around. And if it does take off, maybe you'll get a little bump from them. Yeah, so I guess that will wrap up the Tiny Leaders talk. It's certainly fun, could go places, and if you want to read more, a fellow writer that the, the crew here in the podcast know, Guo Hang Chin wrote a very nice piece on Tiny Leaders, and you can read more about that. It was a 3,000-word article, and you can go read his article as well, and subsequently, he's the one that t- asked us to talk about Tiny <laughs> Leaders. So this, this one's for you, man. Uh, so... We're going to get into our hashtag trending segment. So a lot of price fluctuations, mostly directly from the standard section of Washington, D.C. and the Fate Reforged debut. So so what did we see, guys? What, what did you what do you take away from the trending segment? So as of right now, we're seeing a daily change. We saw a huge increase on Taziger and he's kind of coming back down a little bit. We saw Soulfire Grandmaster, despite seeing a lot of play, come down a little bit. Whisperwood Elemental, you know, a lot of people were speculating that Whisperwood Elemental will break out in a big way. I don't think it's 
too late to cast him off just yet, but he has also seen a slight decrease. And some increases, Monastery Mentor, obviously from the good showing it had in DC, a little bump to Ashiok, a little bump to Anafenza, and Kiora, and Perilous Vault. So those are just a couple of the daily changes, uh, weekly changes, uh, Tazager, obviously leading the charts, followed by Frontier Siege, and we saw how well Frontier Siege did in the tournament and what it can do going forward. I think it's a staple going forward, especially with all those Ugins running around. So what were your thoughts? Uh, we'll start with you, Richard. Yeah, I think you hit on most of the, uh, you know, the, the winners from the weekend there. We had Tazager, uh, we had Frontier Siege. Uh, I would consider Ugin a winner. You know, he, he kept his price. Uh, because yeah. he was played a lot, uh, he would have tanked otherwise. Um, but, you know, some of the other cards that we didn't see movement on, or we saw uh, negative movement on, like Wishwood Elemental, I think we have to wait on those. Um, right now, the metagame is peculiar. It's people trying to go over the top. People are trying to ramp into Ugin and Garrick, right? Or they're trying to uh, chain together three dig-through times. So pe- what people are doing to combat that are trying to go underneath with, like, very fast aggro decks. So those are your red, red, white aggro decks, uh, your heroic decks, whatnot. And we're, we're kind of in a weird spot for mid range. You know, there's, what's the point of casting a 4-4 when you can just cast Ugin, right? Exactly. So depending on how the metagame shapes up, I wouldn't write off all of these, you know, mid range cards yet. We'll, we'll see how it goes and we'll see if kind of these quasi combo decks, which are basically devotion decks or constellation decks, uh, you know, if they, if they remain, you know, king of the hill or if they're going to get supplanted. That's some great thoughts. I, I agree with everything you said. What about you, Seth? Well, I actually thought that Abzan Midrange in specific was one of the winners from the weekend. I mean, if you look at just the top eight, only one deck made it in. But if you go back to the top 16, there's like five decks that fall in that range. Like, so many players on Abzan Midrange had to be playing winning ins like in rounds 14 and 15, and they just happened to not win them. So if things had fallen differently in those one matches, We'd be talking about how the top eight was just stacked full of Abzan mid-range. So, it, so I think it was a good showing for mid-range, even though it doesn't look like it if you just look at the top eight. The other thing I wanted to mention, as far as all these fate cards that are spiking, we've seen this before. Like right now, we are at the lowest supply that Fate Reforge is going to be at. We've seen, if you look at like um, True Name Nemesis, he like crushed a GP, or I think it was a GP, right after he released and spiked up to $50.00. Because there wasn't supply there. So these $10 Tassigers and $5 Frontier Sieges, like, that's awesome. But you got to remember to weigh the other side that more and more of these cards are going to be entering the market over the next weeks and months. Especially with uh, Moto Redemptions and stuff like that as well. Yeah, I think think you guys nailed it perfectly. I I wouldn't really call this a, you know, the end-all, be-all of the metagame so far. Again... There were a lot of standard stuff going on over the weekend, but it's still a small sample size in terms of how long Favorite Forge is going to be in the format and how long we have until Dragons of Tarkir comes out. So a couple of these may say, I have a strong feeling, um, you know, Tazigur, Frontier Siege, those can be decks and strategies going forward. But yeah, I, I think it's too early to write off, you know, cards like Whisperwood Elemental and one of Seth's favorite cards, Warden of the First Tree, <laughs> despite it being fairly good on camera at certain points, being able to take over the game, I don't think it's the end of him either. 
that kind of wraps up our little hashtag trending segment. If you want to see more daily changes and weekly changes, it's always updated on the MTG Goldfish site. You can view those every day for standard, modern, and vintage uh, every day, and it's updated every single day, hourly. With that being said, we have some MTG fish mail to take care of, and we have a lot of stuff this week, so let's just dive into that. So we have a question from Ken Slosser, and I hope I'm not butchering your name, sorry, uh, at cephalid under slash sushi. Uh, hearing a lot of complaints from pod players selling their decks, does that deck really lose that much value? Pod itself was only a small percent of the money in the deck. Should the other cards keep a reasonable value? So what do you think, Richard? Um, I'm going to say no. Uh, so pod runs a lot of utility creatures, and it runs a lot of one of utility creatures. And what Wizards has shown us is they don't like toolbox decks in Modern. They have banned Green Sun Zenith, they have banned Birthing Pod, and they'll ban the next toolbox card, you know, they, they print. So I, I don't think these toolbox cards will, will be played much, right? They, you know, things like Murderous Red Cap, things that battle, uh, Pod, like Minvala, like these, these are cards that are very specific, and I don't think we're gonna see another toolbox deck take the place of Pod, so, you know, I'd be getting rid of these cards if you haven't already. I don't think they're going to maintain their value. All right, what about you, Seth? Well, I mean, I think the problem is, if you're going to be playing, like, Junk or Jund, what would you rather be doing? Would you rather go uh, Voice of Resurgence into Kitchen Finks into Murderous Redcap, or, like, Tarmogoyf and Offensa Siege Rhino? Like, what would you rather have <laughs> on your board? I think I'm going to go with the Tarmogoyf and Offensa uh, Siege Rhino. So, I mean, playing Plan. those cards now, you're just making, like, you're just a worse version of one of the best decks in the format, so I just don't know where they fit in. I also think some of the most expensive cards, uh, Linvala, Noble Hierarch, those are already dangerous just because they're very likely to pop up in Modern Masters 2015. Yeah, I think uh, you nailed it perfectly. So a lot of those, and, and Richard as well, so a lot of those, like, toolboxy type creatures that are, were just in pod to either battle other pod decks or other, you know, these cute little uh, interactions between Malira and, you know, Archangel of Thune and stuff like that. So all those toolboxy cards are going to obviously tank. Like the Kitchen Finks, maybe, it might not, but definitely like Murderous Red Cat, Linvala, those will probably decline. But the a lot of the deck was very junk-oriented, and those cards pr- most likely won't decline because junk seems to be really powerful. So like the Siege Rhino, maybe not Voice of Resurgence, but I don't see it really gaining that much. It'll probably lose from that. But you know, yeah, like I said, like Siege Rhino and stuff like that, the very junk-oriented type cards, you know, they, they should keep a reasonable value. Yep. Moving right along, so Mark Burns, at Burns under slash Mark, I currently live out of the country, but continue to spec on MTG. I cannot sell or spec on cards that quickly rise slash drop and cannot trade, so I am focusing on long-term specs. Other than the obvious, dual slash uh, slash power, what do you think are the targets? I can usually sell cards every year or so. Any personal experience with this sort of specking? So I'll hand that off to Richard first. Um, I don't really have anything meaningful to say, so I'll head it off to Seth. <laughs> okay. Well, well, I don't have uh, a ton of personal experience specking, like, on such a long-term basis, especially on non-reserveless cards. 
I think, though, if what you're looking at is like a year-long time frame, I would be looking at things like Geist of St. Traff, other uh, Shockland cards from semi-recently rotated standard sets that aren't going to be in Modern Masters 2015. Apart from the obvious stuff, that's where I would be right now. Yeah, uh, again, apart from the obvious stuff, and to answer your question, to be, you know, very boring uh, answer, you know, Legacy Staples, for one, like Seth said, you want to look at what I call the mini reserved list, and it's exactly how he's described. It's these semi, uh, semi-recent standard cards that are seeing play in either Modern or Legacy that don't immediately get threatened by reprint. So just to name off a few of the, the more recent ones, as Seth mentioned, like the Geist of St. Traft, you know, for a while it would have been Liliana, but, you know, Snapcaster Mage, stuff like that. Um, just even more recently in Theros, so like Bramaz, and that's pretty much it uh, in the Theros block. <laughs> but so you just want cards that are just newly rotated, but not immediately threatened by a reprint. Other than that, yep, we took care of Guho's uh, request to talk about Tiny Leaders. So we have a little bit extra time before we start wrapping things up. So we wanted to sort of end it again, a little more talk on Tiny Leaders. So any kind of final thoughts or any kind of from any of the topics that we talked about this podcast before we kind of wrap things up? And I'll hand it off to Richard. Yeah, so the, the one thing I'd like to see is Magic Online support for Tiny Leaders. Um, if not explicit support, something like Freeform Commander. Like, I'd like to be able to play, you know, using the official client with my friends. But currently, it's just not possible, given the different play options. I couldn't figure out how to, you know, get get the game to do what I want. So, getting official support from Wizards would uh, get the format going in the right direction. So, I think that that's kind of the next uh, key step for the format here. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It's certainly hard when, um, you know, you it's a... Very new popular format. Everyone, it's kind of catching like wildfire, and it's not really feasible to test it on your computer yet uh, on the official client. Certainly, a obstacle that hopefully is addressed. What about you, Seth? Yeah, I want to second that. Please, Worth, let us play Tiny Leaders on Moto. You can do it, <laughs> Worth. No, seriously though, I was disappointed. I was working on an article about Tiny Leaders and going through some deck lists. And there's a lot of those decks that are super cheap online. You can build these decks for 40 bucks, 100 bucks. Like, it's a pretty inexpensive format. So I think that it would be good for Moto to have a way of letting people play this because it's a really good early entry format. And with the competitive... One thing that Moto's tried not to do is let Commander be a competitive format. People have been calling for competitive, like, Commander queues for a long time, and they just won't do it. But with this format, since it's already made to be one-on-one and competitive, like we could see two-man and eight-man queues of tiny leaders if they wanted to go that direction. That's certainly interesting if they open that up uh, for that. Yeah, the the commander aspect, I totally understand why they won't. I I know there was a lot of kind of outcry for it, but its basis wasn't for that. I know there was kind of like that one-versus-one like French commander circuit where it's specifically one-on-one, and that caught on as well. But... You know, the basis of EDH, uh, Commander, that when it was first, you know, in its inception, was to be a casual format that you can use all those awful rares that you opened up in packs, and they will suddenly be good 
EDH staples, you know, as we've went along. And, you know, Wizard ha- Wizards has dropped a few breadcrumbs along the way of designing specific commander cards and sets. I, I know, I think we can uh, obviously see them these days. So whether that happens with Tiny Leaders, whether they adopt Tiny Leaders remains to be seen. But yeah, it would certainly be a first good step to have it on the official Moto client. So I guess sort of wrapping things up before we end the podcast. Um, yeah, Tiny Leaders is very fun. I like it. I don't know. I I think it's real. I want to say it's it's going to stay. Uh, I don't think it's really that kind of fad kind of thing. But I don't know where we are in terms of how it affects card movement. You know, I don't want to say something, you know, a blanket statement because, you know, it's just still so new. And I don't know if there's going to be specific, uh, again, Google wrote the article, but and, and a lot of other people are now publishing kind of literature on this and you can read it on their like official Facebook page and Facebook group and stuff like that. But things like smother and like foil smother and like uh, I've heard I've heard little rumblings about it, but is foil smother supposed to be like, is that going to be a $20, you know, suddenly spiked card because of tiny leaders? I don't know because like all the printings and it's just like not a very good card in legacy. So, you know, Richard mentioned this. I just don't know. So kind of final thoughts on that. Well, Richard. Oh, go ahead. Go, go ahead. Go ahead, Seth. <laughs> well, I, was, okay. I think the thing is, um, <laughs> I think the thing is EDH is very different. Like that's part of what makes all these cards, uh, so all these commander staples so expensive is uh, they were cards that weren't played anywhere. And then all of a sudden this new format comes out and really gains traction where you can play all these crazy cards. While I think Tiny Leaders is a lot of fun, it doesn't feel that much different than Legacy. I mean, you're Singleton, of course, but other than that, like it feels like Legacy Light, like Richard said. So I'm not sure that it can ever be anywhere near as big as EDH is or any of the other big formats because it's in this weird uh, place in between uh, Legacy and all these other formats. And Richard? Yeah, uh, it'd be interesting. I don't know how we can get data for this, but it'd be interesting to see... Uh, where tiny leaders, tiny leaders players come from, whether they're, uh, commander players that convert to tiny leaders or whether they're legacy players that convert to tiny leaders. Uh, I suspect you'll see more legacy players hopping over. Um, it's just a more accessible format. You know, if you open your modern masters pack and you have a Liliana in there, you can build a deck. Whereas if you're trying to build a legacy deck, uh, you need three more Lilianas. You know, there's still, still a lot of money to be spent. So to me, it's a approachable legacy format. So we'll we'll see how it goes, but I expect more legacy players to try to entice their friends into playing legacy by getting them started on tiny leaders. That's certainly a very interesting uh, observation. I didn't even really think about that. I like that kind of method of getting into tiny leaders of you know legacy players enticing people to play, but it's also sort of this semi quasi like casual thing too. You know, at the same time, I, I really like that. I think that's like a very good way for people to get into the format. So with that being said, I think it's about that time to wrap up the podcast. So episode four, thank you everyone for listening and joining us here at the MTG Goldfish podcast. The crew is always happy to answer your hashtag MTG fish mail, and we will do so every episode. 
So, yeah, I think that wraps things up. Thank you guys for uh, always giving your thoughts and insights on everything MTG related. And we will see you next time. So this is the MTG Goldfish podcast crew signing off.